You're listening to a sermon preached at Cross and Crown in Melbourne. We believe that God speaks through the Bible and he calls us to preach the word in season and out of season. We pray that as you listen, you'll be strengthened to know, love and live for Jesus. As Christians, we believe that the Bible is the word of God and that when we read the Bible, we hear God's words. So we're going to be listening to God's words today as we read from 1 Peter 1, 3 to 12. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of his great mercy, he's given us birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you. You're being guarded by God's power through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. You rejoice in this, even though now, for a short time, if necessary, you suffer grief in various trials, so that the proven character of your faith, more valuable than gold, which though perishable is refined by fire, may result in praise, glory and honour at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though not seeing him now, you believe in him. And you rejoice with inexpressible and glorious joy because you're receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that would come to you searched carefully and investigated. They inquired into what time or what circumstances the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating when he testified in advance to the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. And it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you. These things have now been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Angels long to catch a glimpse of these things. Gracious God, we ask that you might give us uh, eyes to see, ears to hear, minds to understand and hearts to receive your word written for us. These things we pray for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, uh, if you're new here, you might not know this, but if you've been here for any amount of time and we've gotten to know each other, uh, you'll know that uh, I lived in Canberra for a very, very short period of my life. Um, it's okay, um, I'm back now. So, uh, But when I was there, I attended a really great church. It's called Crossroads. It's uh, an FIEC church that's up in Canberra. If you go to Canberra, please drop in, say hi to Marcus and the other guys up there. Wonderful church. Now, I remember the very first week that I joined one of their small groups. You know, you sign up online and you turn up, and I didn't know anyone. It can be a terrifying experience. 
If you're new, join a BLT. I know it can be a bit scary, but you won't regret it. I hope. Uh, and in that first week in our small group, our leader asked us to do what pretty much happens, I think, is a universal experience in every small group, in every church around the world. We go, we go around the circle and our small group leader asks us, oh, look, can you please introduce yourself? Tell us who you are. I hate that question. Like, I never know what to say. How can you sum up who you are in just 10 to 20 seconds? Well, people started sharing. And they said all the typical things that, well, in many ways, you would not be surprised to hear from a church in Canberra. You won't hear this anywhere else, but this is what it sounded like. Uh, hi, my name's Grace, and uh, I work as a foreign diplomat. Oh, okay. Uh, hi, my name's Luke, and I'm an advisor to the Attorney General. Uh, my friend, Dean Ingham, he goes to church, this church in Canberra, and he goes in his small group. He has a family court judge, the High Commissioner uh, to the People's Republic of China, uh, and a few other things. That's just what the church in Canberra is like. Everyone introduced themselves, and as they did, they defined themselves by what they did. Until we got to Anna. And she said, hi, my name's Anna. And one thing you need to know about me is um, I'm adopted. And I think, wow, what a remarkable way of not only introducing yourself, but defining yourself. She didn't define her life, notice, by what she did. Her life was defined by what someone else did for her. I mean, she didn't decide to be adopted. No, the decision was made by her parents, and it was made something in many ways entirely outside her control. And yet notice, that one decision gave her a new life, a new identity. Importantly, it gave her a new hope. We might even say that in that one decision that her parents made for her, though she had no part in it whatsoever, it gave her a new birth. A new birth. And, and friends, so it is for us. Who are we? We are children of God. A God who has given us a new birth, a new life, a new identity. And with that new life, we have a new hope. And that's what we find right at the heart of our passage there, right in verse 3. Did you notice it? Because of his great mercy, he has given us a new birth. Who are we? We are children of God. We are children of God. I wonder if you remember what 1 Peter's all about. We're back in the first century right now, and the Gentile Christians are living as exiles scattered across the Roman Empire, scattered across the known world. And as exiles, they're living under, I wonder if you remember, they're living under persecution and they're living under pressure. Now notice, they're not being martyred for the gospel. No one's being killed here. But whether it was at work, at home or among their friends, no, they were experiencing low-level, ongoing social rejection. Low-level, ongoing social rejection. And can't we sympathize with that experience today? And I wonder if for you, you get how they might be feeling. That the great temptation for these Christian exiles, maybe the great temptation for us as well, is to step back. To step back from the gospel. To step back from standing for Jesus. To step back from identifying as a Christian. And so the Apostle Peter writes this letter with one purpose. 
He wants to encourage them, don't step back. Stand firm. Don't step back, stand firm. And he begins this letter by grounding us in our identity, by reminding us of who we are. Last week in chapter 1, verses 1 to 2, the prologue, we are chosen by God. And today, in verses 3 to 12, we are children of God. We'll pretty much stop there and just go home, but we're not going to do that. We're going to look at what that means. We are children of God. And, and he has this advice, right? When it gets hard to stand firm as a child of God, what are we to do? When I start to forget who I am as a child of God, how should I remind myself of who I am? Well, all we have to do is take two looks. Take two looks. Number one, look forward. Look forward to our eternal inheritance. And number two, look back to God's eternal plan. Look forward to our eternal inheritance. We're at uh, verses three to nine. Before you look at your Bibles, I want you to just picture this for a moment, right? Some of you are parents and you have kids. Some of you are kids and have parents, but, but I want you to imagine that there's a young boy. He's coming home from his first day at school. He's so excited. He can't wait to tell his mom all about it. So he rushes through the door. He sees his mom in the kitchen. He goes, mom. And he starts telling her absolutely everything. From 9 a.m. to 3.30 p.m., he just rushes through the whole day. Mom, guess what? It was so good. I made so many new friends. There was this one guy called Sam. He reads the same manga that I do. My teacher, Mr. Chen, is so good. There's this girl who's really pretty. I really want to talk to her. I want to join the basketball team, the anime club. They've even got this exchange program to Japan. And the mum says, Johnson, take a breath. Calm down. Breathe. Believe it or not, it's kind of what's happening in verses 3 to 9. You see, in the original language, this passage is actually one long sentence, 114 words, no commas, no full stops, and it sounds like not even a single breath. It's as if Peter's this young boy who's so excited to tell us about the greatest news of all. But when you stop to think about it, it's all a bit strange, isn't it? I mean, remember, Peter, chapter 5, verse 12, he's writing from Rome. He's writing from the Babylon of his world. He's writing under persecution and pressure. And yet, under such great distress, somehow, somehow, he still has such great joy. It's almost like as if that young boy had been mercilessly bullied at school that day, and yet still he runs home rejoicing. Why? Why can Peter have such great joy in such great distress? Well, verses 1 to 3 tell us. It's because God has given us a new birth. A new birth. That word for new birth is a play on the word for resurrection. They sound the same in the original language. It says, it's as if Peter is saying, no, your new birth is your resurrection life. You see, that's exactly what we see in verse 3. Have your Bibles open. Why does God give us this resurrection life? His great mercy. How does God give us this resurrection life? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Can you see? The motivation is his mercy and the means is his son. 
And just like for my friend Anna, the great benefit of adoption, the great benefit of this new life is that, guess what? We've got a new hope. We've got a new hope. Just imagine for these Christians, hope is everything that these Christian exiles wouldn't have had, but would have desperately longed for. I mean, if you were suffering each and every day for standing for Jesus, surely you'd feel just a little hopeless, wouldn't you? Surely you'd despair. You'd want to step back. You'd want to give up. But Peter says, no, don't step back. Don't despair. Don't give up. God has given us a new birth, a new identity, a new hope. But notice, it's not just any hope. It's a living hope. It's a hope as alive as the risen Lord Jesus. It's a hope that cannot be defeated by death. Friends, I wonder if you can see Peter's logic here. He's saying, Jesus was resurrected to life by God, and so now God has given us a resurrection. And because we have this resurrection life, now we have a resurrection hope. You see, we might be experiencing that low-level, ongoing social rejection for the gospel, Gosh, we might even be hunted and killed, as many, as many Christians throughout history have been. But do not despair. Do not step back. Do not give up. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. You see, friends, our hope is as living as the risen Lord Jesus. Our hope cannot be defeated by death any more than death could not defeat our God. You might wonder, why does Peter have such great joy in such great distress? Well, it's because no matter how great our distress, our hope is greater still. No matter how great our distress, our hope is greater still. In fact, so great is our hope that I want you to see what Peter calls it. He calls it an inheritance. An inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for us. Let me ask a question. You don't have to be a lawyer to know this. Um, who's eligible to receive an inheritance? Who's eligible to receive an inheritance? I'm going to ask you, imagine for a moment that, sadly, uh, one of your relatives suddenly dies. And it falls to you to be the executor of their will. And as you consult with your lawyers, I come along. And I say to your whole family, thank you, thank, thank you very much. I'm going to lay claim to my share of the estate. Now you would be forgiven for, I was going to say assaulting me, but no, it would be offensive, wouldn't it, right? I mean, how dare I lay claim to your relative's estate? I'm not part of your family. I'm not entitled to any part of it. Now, who's entitled to the inheritance? Only a daughter. Only a son. Only a child. Only an heir. And friends, I want you to see that is who we are. A daughter. A son. A child. An heir of God. You see, I want you, you might notice when you read the, these 10 verses that you can't find the word child anywhere, can you? You can't find the word adoption anywhere, can you? And yet that idea, it runs through every line of this passage. 
It's the foundation of this passage. For let me ask, who else can receive an inheritance other than a child? You see, that's what Peter means when he writes that God has given us a new birth. He's saying that God has made us his daughters and sons. And just like my friend Anna was given a new birth through her adoption, guess what? You and I have been given a new birth through ours. Who are you? You might define yourself by your ethnicity, by your culture, by your age, by your gender, or by your work. But as important as all those things might be, none of them fundamentally defines us. You see, more than anything else, if someone asks you, who are you? Here's your answer. We are daughters and sons of God. Or to put last week and this week, or last fortnight and this week together, we have been chosen by God to be children of God. We have been chosen by God to be children. There's the goal of our election adoption. Or as J.I. Packer says, as good as justification might be, no, the greatest reality of all is our adoption as sons and daughters of God. It's so important to know who you are. You know, increasingly our world is slandering Christians as hateful and intolerant. It's not uncommon, actually, whether it's at home, at work, or among friends, to be rejected, to be excluded, to be shunned. Again, it's sort of like these guys here. It might not be high-level martyrdom. You might not be losing your life for the sake of the gospel. But what is it? It's that ongoing low-level social rejection. And we're being accused of being all sorts of terrible things. But I want you to see, who cares? It doesn't really matter. Because whatever the world might say, we know who we are. We are children of God, and nothing can change that. I want you to imagine right now that child who's running home from school, but now he's being chased by bullies all the way home. PTSD, you can talk to me about it later. He runs home in tears, straight into his mother's arms. And as his mother holds him, in that moment, all his fears disappear. It doesn't matter what's going on out there. Because he knows in that moment who's opinion really matters. He knows in that moment who he really is. He is a child of his mother, chosen, loved, safe, secure. You see, whatever names the world might call us, we know who we are. Children of God, chosen, loved, safe, secure. And as God's children, praise God, guess what? We get that eternal inheritance. But you might wonder, what is that inheritance? Inheritance sounds pretty good, right? What is it that God has promised us in eternity? Verse 5 says, He has promised us our inheritance, which is our future salvation. You see, we often think about our salvation as something that hasn't happened entirely in the past, something that God has accomplished at the cross but I want you to see that it has a present and a future as well. You see, not only have we been saved from the penalty of sin, 
We are being saved from the power of sin. And one day in the future to come, we will be saved from the presence of sin as well. One day the Lord Jesus will return and he'll complete our salvation. One day he'll save us from this sinful and broken world. But I wonder if you can see that how significant this future salvation must have been for these Christian exiles. You can just imagine it. For, for, this promise of sal- for this is a promise of salvation not only from sin and death, it's a promise of salvation from persecution and pressure. You see, as God's children, what is our inheritance? Our inheritance is a life where suffering for the gospel will be no more. Our inheritance is an eternity where we won't feel that discomfort of being torn between two worlds. Our eternal inheritance is an eternal life of freedom with God. No longer any persecution for the gospel, no longer any pressure for living for Jesus, but nothing but full and final rest. Our eternal inheritance is, praise God, the end of our exile. The end of our exile. Finally, God will have brought us home. Two weeks ago, I... I, shared with you that hymn that I grew up singing, this world is not my home, I'm just a passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. The angels beckon me from heaven's open door. And what's that last line? And I can't feel at home in this world anymore. If you've ever felt that sense of deep yearning and deep longing for a world where everything is set right, that is our eternal inheritance. I don't know about you, but I long for that day. I long for that day. Uh, Many years ago when I worked as a lawyer, I remember there was one case that was particularly demanding. It was one of those litigations that just went on for 72 hours. Uh, You pull out your mattress, you're sleeping back from under the desk, and you ain't going anywhere. My billables were fantastic that week, though. One night, though, I remember we came to the end of it. I'd finished all my work. Honest to God, clarity of conscience, I'd finished my work. I was on my way out of the office. And my senior associate shouted out from his office. He was the shouty type. He shouted out from his office, where do you think you're going? I told him that I'd finished up and I was going to my church small group. Um, And he frowned and he said, you might want to think twice about that. If you want to attend this church thing every week, I might have to think twice about what cases I give you. Now, you might think it's just not that big a deal, but I was a law grad, right? Just past probation, but still, I was scared. It felt like like that moment was my whole world. It felt like only that mattered in life and nothing else, that the office was my world. And to be honest, I felt embarrassed. I felt ashamed that I thought I was being seen to be someone who I wasn't, that I was afraid that I was going to lose what felt like everything. It was so easy to assume that what my senior associate thought of me in that moment was what mattered most. And can I tell you, the the pressure actually was quite great to back down, to step back, to to cave. I mean, you, you might not have had an experience exactly like that before, I hope not but it might not sound all too unfamiliar. It was hard. Well, Lord Peter tell me, when you struggle to live for Jesus, when when you feel the persecution and pressure, don't step back. Stand firm. 
Make sure you do your work, then go, right? Look forward to your internal inheritance. Look forward to your future salvation. Look forward to that day when you'll be free from conflict with this world. And here's the best part. God is keeping our inheritance for us, but he's also keeping us for our inheritance. Notice verse 5. You're being guarded by God's power through faith for a salvation that's ready to be revealed in the last time. Do you realize what that means? It means that God chose us in the beginning and he'll keep us to the end. You can't lose your salvation because God can't lose you. You see, you might think to yourself, Adam, it's great that I've got this eternal inheritance. But here's the truth. I'm just crawling right now. I'm not going to make it there. God can keep that inheritance safe for me, but I'm just crawling on all fours to get there, and the chances are I'm not going to make it. It's just too hard. I can't keep going. I can't stand firm. But can you see? God will keep you. He'll keep you going. He'll carry us when we can stand no more. See, if you're struggling to stand for Jesus at work, at home with your family, or among your friends, if you can feel yourself beginning to waver, if you can feel yourself wanting to take a step back, don't, don't look forward. God will keep you to the end. He will keep you. Now, you might think when we read passages like this, oh, Peter, he's just a bit insensitive, isn't he? I mean, like, my life is hard. Standing for Jesus is hard. I don't want to be disowned by my friends. I don't want consequences at work. And Peter's coming along and just saying, rejoice. Well, I want you to see that Peter's not indifferent to our suffering. Just look at verse 6. He acknowledges that we suffer grief in various trials. He describes our suffering as being refined by fire. Fire is not comfortable to say the least. You see, Peter isn't hopelessly naive. He's not in delusional denial. No, he is clear-eyed about our persecution and our pressure. And yet, in spite of that, he rejoices. Not once, not twice, but three times in verses 6 and 8. You see, Peter, he's in such great distress but he has a far greater joy. Why? Why? I want you to see why. Because firstly, our suffering confirms our identity. Our suffering confirms who we are. Look at what verse 7 says about why we suffer. We suffer as Christians, verse 7, so that the proven character of your faith, more valuable than gold, which though perishable is refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus. Did you see that? We suffer so that the proven character of your faith may result in praise on the final day. Peter's painting this picture of a blacksmith refining a bar of gold by putting it through the flames. And that gold is quite literally blowtorched. And all of its impurities melt away. And all that remains is this pure and perfect bar of gold. And that's what suffering does for our faith. It burns off our sinful impurities. And all that remains is a true and genuine 
faith. You see, suffering refines our faith. Notice here, Peter's not saying it tests our faith. That might be for somewhere else, but no, here in chapter 1, he's saying it's not a test to see whether it's genuine or false. No, he says it's refining to prove that it is genuine. Suffering reveals who we really are. Uh, When I was in high school, uh, I didn't have any Christian friends. I had friends, but they just weren't Christian. Um, And can I tell you, if you go through school for seven years without any Christian friends, I felt so alone. I felt really, really alone. Maybe you're at work and you've got not a Christian friend and you feel all alone. All I ever wanted was a Christian classmate who could be my brother at school. It was an all-boys school. Um, Maybe you felt that before at home. You just feel like you're the only Christian at home. I just wish one of my siblings or one of my parents was a believer as well. Maybe you feel that at work, I'm the only Christian at my company or my firm. I wish I could go there. It's much better there. Maybe you might feel that among your friends. I'm the only Christian here. I just don't want to make it awkward. I won't say anything. But if I had one other, at least I could talk to them. Lord, just give me one other believer. It's embarrassing to say, uh, every year from grade 5 to year 12, I got to December, I look forward to the year to come, and I prayed that God would give me just one Christian classmate. Every year, that's what I prayed for. But he didn't. He didn't. I've always wondered why. I always looked at my friends at Baldwin High, and there's all there's just a team, and there's just a mass of Christians there. But no, not at Xavier. No Christians in my year level there. And I always wondered why. But do you know what? When I look back, never having had a Christian class A actually made me acutely aware of who I was. It was this everyday reminder that I did not belong. That experience of aloneness, in many ways, at a low level for a high school student, it blowtorched my faith. It confirmed to me who I wasn't and who I was. I wasn't a Xavier boy. Praise the Lord. I was a child of God. And that experience of aloneness also made me look forward. It made me long for Sunday when I'd gather with God's people around His Word. It made me long for graduation. It made me long for that final day as well. When all of us will gather with God's people around his throne forever. You see, friends, our suffering confirms our identity and it makes us long for eternity. It makes us long for the day on which praise, glory, and honor will be revealed with Jesus Christ. You need to know that our suffering is not senseless. Our pain is not purposeless. No, we suffer so that we might be reminded of who we are and so that we might long for better days. That's why Peter can have such great joy in such great distress. For he knows who he is, and he knows what he will one day receive. I'll be honest, it can be hard to stand for Jesus. Standing for Jesus might mean, or almost inevitably will mean, forfeiting some pleasures of this world. It may mean pursuing a less respectable or successful career. It may mean being overlooked for a promotion or being excluded by your friends. It's hard. But I want you to know this, that for whatever we might lose in this life for Jesus' sake, no, our eternal inheritance is so much better.
Gosh, in verse 8, these Christian exiles, look, they, they were suffering for a God whom they could not see. And yet I love it. They still trust him. They still love him. For they know who they are. They are children of God. And they know what they have. They have an eternal inheritance and a future hope. Now, when you suffer for the gospel, when you are excluded by others, when you are mocked by your family for following the Lord Jesus, I want you to know this. Let our losses on earth make us long for our gains in heaven. Let our pain in this world make us long for praise in eternity. Let our shame before man make us long for glory before God. Keep looking forward. Head up. Look forward to our eternal inheritance. And finally and briefly, look back. Look back to God's eternal plan. You know, for those Christian exiles, it would have been so easy to think, nothing in my life is going according to plan. Didn't God promise that he would be with us? Didn't he say that he'd protect us? So why are we suffering as we are? Why are we living as exiles under persecution and pressure? And you might be asking many of the same questions if you're standing for Jesus. Why am I being shunned by my friends? Why do I feel like an outcast at work? Why is my relationship with my non-Christian parents or children so strained? Nothing is going according to plan. As you can see, nothing. Well, so we think. Because in verses 10 to 12, Peter wants us to look back. Look back and realize that everything, absolutely everything, not just your salvation, but everything including your suffering, is going exactly according to plan. Look at it. Peter looks back to the Old Testament prophets. And this is what he says, right? He says, all of those prophets, they search carefully and they investigated, and they inquired, and they longed to know the answer to one big question. When? When? When will our prophecies come to pass? You can only imagine how frustrating it must be to be a prophet, right? Prophesying all these things, never seeing it. When will our prophecies finally come to pass? When will our words become a reality? Or maybe if you understood their words, they say, when will the salvation we keep talking about finally come true? Deep longing. Or maybe the even deeper question wasn't even when. It was who. Who will be the ones to benefit from our promises? Who will be the ones to inherit these prophecies? Who will be the ones to receive the anticipated, prophesied, longed-for salvation of which we speak? Look at the emphasis of verse 12. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. These things have now been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you. That's pretty powerful. Who are the ones who will benefit from our prophecies? Who are the ones who will inherit our promises? Who are the ones who will receive this anticipated salvation? You want to know the answer? It's you. And you. And you. I'm not Oprah. You and you and you. It's true. That's the wonderful reality that we have. It was all for us. 
It was all for our salvation. I want you to notice everything written in this book, everything throughout salvation history, it was all for us. You know, sometimes we uh, think to ourselves, gosh, Adam, I I wish I lived in the time of the prophets. Then it would be so much easier, wouldn't it? I could hear God's audible voice. I could experience his tangible presence. I could live in his physical kingdom. Can I tell you, if you said that to one of the prophets, they would laugh. They'd say, no, you don't want to live here. We want to live there. You don't want to live in the age of the prophets. We wish we lived in the age of the church so that we could receive the promises of which we speak. We could enjoy the inheritance of which we prophesy. We could receive the salvation which we speak of day in and day out. No, you and you and you are the beneficiaries of everything we have ever said. All of this has been all for you. You are the ones upon whom the end of the ages have come. Even the angels long to catch a glimpse of these things, and you are even more privileged than they. You see, friends, God has been working through every moment of human history to choose you, to save you, to adopt you as his daughters and sons. The prophets testified in verse 11 to notice the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. Suffering and then glory. Salvation through suffering. That's the pattern of Jesus' life. And that's the pattern of our lives as well. And if that's the case, if the prophets testified of salvation through suffering, suffering now, glory later, both for Jesus and for us. Do you know what that means? It means that our greatest sufferings for Jesus are not an accident. They are not an anomaly. They are not an aberration. Now, all our salvation, all our suffering is all part of God's eternal plan. When you suffer for the gospel, When you take a stand for the Lord Jesus and things go wrong, people mistreat you, they say things about you, they exclude you from things, your relationship with your parents or your children, your siblings is strained, do not think that God's plans have been derailed. Do not think that this suffering is somehow not part of his plan. Now, you need to know that if you are suffering for Jesus and his glory, everything is going exactly according to plan. Look back and remind yourself of God's eternal plan of salvation through suffering. You know, at the end of that first small group at Crossroads, we all sat there, right? We're having supper. And one of the group members asked Anna the inappropriate question we all wanted to ask. What's it like being adopted? She said, it's great. It's great. Because every time I'm tempted to think that my parents don't love me, all I have to do is look back. I just have to remind myself that my parents actually wanted me. They had a plan for me. They literally went to great cost, great expense, great time and great effort to choose me, to save me, to give me a new life. How could I not feel loved? Oh, she's so right, isn't she? 
And we Christians can look back as well. And we can see a God who has planned throughout human history to work for our adoption from the beginning of time. But even more than that, now that we're his children, we can look forward. We can look forward to the day on which, as his children, we will receive our eternal inheritance. We can look forward to the day on which we'll receive a world without sin and suffering, a world without persecution or pressure, a world where conflict will be an end, where we will be exiles no more, a world where we will finally be home. So if you're finding it hard to stand for Jesus, if you're finding it hard to live for him at home, at work, among your friends, Look up and look forward. Remind yourself of who we really are. We are God's children with an eternal inheritance for the salvation of our souls. Let me pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, what a wonder it is to call you our Father. And what a comfort it is to know that we are your daughters and sons. Thank you for adopting us in the Lord Jesus, for giving us a new birth, a new life, a new hope, so that not only can we look back and see your faithfulness throughout history, but when we struggle to stand for the Lord Jesus, when it's hard to live for him, when we're tempted to step back and back down, we can look forward to the day on which you'll make all things new the day in which we'll be exiles no more, the day where we can rest, the day where we can finally be at home. How we long for that day. All for Jesus' sake. Amen.